and he is not silent, wrote Francis Schaeffer decades ago in a thought-provoking exploration of God's existence and nature. In the drama and the debate of who is God and is there moral clarity and do we even need a God, it was Francis Schaeffer who responded academically and said he is there and he is not silent. He wrote this to combat humanism and relativism, where Schaefer argued that it is actually God who is not silent, but has revealed himself and not left us in the dark. Far too often we think that we're just caught up in a randomness of the universe, and we just hope that there's something out there controlling it or guiding it. And, and this is a foundation for all reality and all knowledge, that there is a personal, rational, moral God. And this, calls us, this God calls us to be our own selves moral and rational in our everyday actions. Uh, he was writing this book to call for a return to a biblical view of God and an acknowledgement of his active presence in the world, asking the question, if God is real and he is active, does that not cause you to live differently? Certainly, if he wasn't real and he wasn't active or any one of those, that would cause you to live in a certain way, wouldn't you? He calls for a return to this. And I think what's so amazing about books like Schaefer's and so many other philosophical or theological books is they honestly argue that what the Bible has already said is absolutely what you and I need to hold ourselves to in understanding. People talk about this book, He is There and He is Not Silent, and other people have written more classics and amazing books, and you read them and you go, I think that's what the Bible says, and you should be encouraged. Yes, that's how the Bible reveals God to us. It's the Bible that shows God speaking. It's the Bible who shows God revealing who he is. It's the Bible which shows what is best for man to live in accordance with God's ways. It's the Bible that asserts that God is not being silent or passing, passive, but actually revealing himself through his creation and through the world around us, and also in his word. It's through his own revelation, what you and I might call the scriptures or the Bible, where we're seeing that we're called to seek and engage him through our lives and with our lives, both in the natural world, you might think of your circumstances, your life, but also to seek and engage him through his scriptures, letting it be the template of how you and I might see the world, the lenses of our very own delight and sometimes confusion or sometimes wonder, but it's, it's his word that ought to shape our very turning of our affections toward the world towards him. Through his own revelation, we're called to seek him. So turning to the book of Zephaniah, I hope you see the distinct call that Zephaniah has to the people who would be reading this to return to God and the recognition of his sovereign presence and glory. Far too often you and I might find ourselves like the audience of Zephaniah just thinking we can get away with what we want to do or even wondering if we feel oppressed or circumstances are bearing down around us that, that maybe God really isn't there or maybe he's just working on something else and leaving us alone in the dark. Zephaniah is a prophetic book, part of what is called the Minor Prophets. And if you're unused to the scriptures, there's a, there's a collection of 12 uh, biblical books called the Minor Prophets, and they're minor because they're short, versus the Major Prophets, those are long. But the Minor Prophets were given over to God's people on one major scroll. So you can see this like a chapter book. And now we turn to the next chapter where God is repeatedly telling his people that he will bring about salvation uniquely by judgment of sin. And so we come to the audience of Zephaniah, a prophetic book that warns of impeding judgment because people are idolatrous and they don't care about God's ways and they don't care about God's laws. So Zephaniah 
his prophecy emphasizes for you and me to turn back to God, acknowledge God's existence, and live according to God's own revealed truth because God is there and he's not silent. In a world where you and I are being encouraged on a regular basis to actually decline morally and grow apathetic spiritually, it's actually God's invasion to us by summoning us back to him. So look at the very beginning. Look at the very beginning of the book of Zephaniah, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi. And then it goes on with a long speech. And then go to the very end, just a couple of pages at the very end of chapter 3. At that time, I will bring you in, and at that time, when I gather you together, I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord, or thus says the Lord. It's amazing how already this is a, this is a technique in trying to just figure out what in the world Zephaniah is about. I'd imagine some of you have read the Minor Prophets and some of them come across pretty clearly. I'd imagine some of you have read some of the Minor Prophets and go... I don't know what that was about. There's this technique called top and tail. You see at the very beginning, the very end, how they, in this case, they really match each other. The Lord speaks, and then he concludes his sermon. And so this, for us, really sets the agenda of what is Zephaniah about? It is about God revealing himself to his people. In one long speech, one long prophecy, one long couple of chapters, God is speaking to his enemies and his people alike, and he summons us to listen to him. In a world where you and I are being encouraged to decline morally, we should listen to the Lord. In a day and age when you and I are encouraged to grow apathetic spiritually, this book is calling us to listen to the Lord. You see how these things correlate. In this case, what's being said is that God is speaking to his people. With the first verse, we know about Zephaniah actually more than any other minor prophet before him or after him. Because he gives four generations of his own name, that allows us to know who this guy is in relation to other people. It allows us to know a time span. It allows us to know how he is actually a really important person. I mean, if you were related to, I don't know, George Washington, if George Washington was like your fifth great grandpa, you would probably like that. I mean, that's a party trick. You would totally introduce yourself to someone. Like, hey, what what do you do? Oh, I like sports. Like, well, I'm a descendant of the first general of the Continental Congress or Continental Army. And here he's identifying himself to us where we can generally see that what he's, being, what he's prophesying about is around 630 B.C., so a long time ago, but its completion would actually come about just one generation later, a couple years later, one or two decades later, in the totality of God's havoc wrecking over this area. So whatever the precise date may be, we see that Zephaniah helps us learn, I think, at least five things about God. Remember, it's God who's speaking here, and he is helping us understand bit by bit more of who he is out of his grace and mercy to us, as well as grace and mercy to these people. The first thing I want you to see, so we'll be going through uh, kind of bit by bit, passage by passage in this book. The first thing I want you to see here about God is that God is an exclusive God. God is an exclusive God. You see this in verses 2 through 9 of the first chapter, where Zephaniah prophesies and proclaims through an oracle that God is exclusive. He alone is awesome He alone deserves your reverence. He alone deserves these people's awe and attention. You look at verse 9, or the first nine verses of this passage, and it's clear that Zephaniah was confronting wickedness of God's people in Jerusalem, and God would punish them, he says, because they have equated things that they have around them or circumstances around them or even, even false deities around them on the same level as God. 
And so he says, God will come and he will judge you so that you recognize that it is him alone on the top shelf of who you should worship. Using some of the most dramatic language in these opening verses of any prophecy in the scriptures, three times God says that he will sweep away sinners in just two verses. Two times he says that he will cut off evildoers. And one time he says he will stretch out his hand against them like a mighty sword or a toppling swing. And twice he promises to punish them in verses 8 and then again in 9. These verbs really say so much about who God is. There is no arm that stretches out that can compare to him. There is nothing that can sweep people away outside of him. There is nothing that can truly cut something off like an enemy other than God himself. God in his exclusivity is actually very severe in this case, with sin and sinners. And he delivered on this. One generation after the prophecy, Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. They were invaded, these people, their kingdom was invaded, they were carried off, and then these enemies only came back to destroy everything that they left behind. They came back to destroy the city, they came back to destroy the walls, and they even came back to destroy the Lord's temple. I wonder what the religious situation described by Zephaniah sounds like to you. Haunting, horrifying, maybe hopeful, like, yes, go get them, man. Those are terrible people. Rip them apart. Zephaniah's prophecy addresses all those who were supposed to worship God. In many ways, you can, you can take this up, and it, it doesn't look like a window for you to see how the world really is. This book is much to us like a mirror. For you and I look at this and go, we are called to worship God Alone, we are called to not place anything else up in the place of God. We're called to worship an exclusive God. And what does he do when we don't? It's clear that many were worshiping other gods. They were, you could say, being inclusive. They were being respectful. They were getting the best from different traditions. Maybe a little bit of this, maybe a little bit of that. Our gods are really caring and You know, he's a really inclusive God. He's happy with all of his children. Maybe they're even hedging their bets a little bit, trying to say, well, if I'm supposed to do this, but this other kind of religious encampment seems to be doing well. They're all tall people. Everyone likes them. You know, maybe maybe there's something there. But God in this scripture is exclusive. He shares no glory with anyone else. Worshiping the true God in something else isn't worshiping the true God at all. Though worshiping God shouldn't be forced, you think of what some people want to do with things like laws or even forcing people and their attention. Worshiping God can't be forced, it shouldn't be forced. But you, Christians, should be clear all the time. You think about your relationships with other people. As for me and my house, we serve the Lord, you might say. We're going to worship Christ this Christmas. We're going to educate our kids in a particular way. We're going to go on a certain vacation. We're going to live a certain way. You're called to be clear and consistent with who God is through all of that where you are adamant in proclaiming what the Bible says, not just how you practice, but what the Bible says, that there is one God and one path of salvation, that there is one way to honor him. The exclusivity of God and the exclusivity of of his redemptive ways is so easily overlooked, you can tell in this passage, and don't you know that it is so easily overlooked in my life and in your life. It is avoided even by very religious people, yet it's stamped on almost every page of the Old Testament, certainly here in Zephaniah, where there is one God and one way to him. And there's a God who tolerates no rival. Jesus taught this as well. 
Uh, he said that he was the only way to the one true God. And on top of that, in John chapter 14, on top of that, he said that he was the only way, that only through him can people have any sort of access to God altogether. And he, God, Jesus God, had come in human flesh to seek and save his people through the sacrifice of his own body. The, exclus- the exclusivity of God in the Old Testament is being fulfilled in the exclusivity of the pathway to a holy life. In the New Testament, by Jesus actually sacrificing himself. And so, Christian, I think a call for this book is to see the havoc that is being poured out on enemies of God, recognizing that the havoc that's being poured out on the enemies of God is by what they are doing in the place of God himself. And I wonder if someone were to ask you what is competing with your faith today, what you would honestly say. What do you worry about? What do you daydream about? What catches your attention on your phone? What catches your attention when you have time to yourself? I jokingly said in the Sunday school class, Brooke left the house yesterday for like an hour, and I was given the task to feed my baby with a bottle that she made and put him down for a nap after a diaper that she had changed. And when she came back, I was like, I need a little bit of me time. (laughs) And she she just didn't say a word. And, but what would you do during your me time? What did these people do during their me time? It was not God's time. And he comes in holy havoc. Our witness to the gospel cannot be comprised by a toleration of anything but the exclusivity of God himself. If someone were a good brother or sister to you in just this membership of a church, they might ask you what's competing with God in your life. And they might even help you overcome and fight against that. You might ask someone that and they might say, man, all I worry about is money. All I think about is the danger to come. You know, if something doesn't happen or something doesn't change. And they might help you think through what you have in God and overcome our worry and our fear or even our false worship. And our witness to the gospel must not be compromised by tolerating among those who call themselves believers, lifestyles that are opposed to God's will. We're called to help them, their fight. This is truly what church discipline is, to help others in their fight towards faith. And when they're struggling with their fight, we join them in redirecting them towards that fight towards Zion. And this is where we are to preach it to ourselves, preach it to other people, live it in ourselves, and help other people live it all together. So Christian, do you see what this means for you particularly. It means that your loyalties must not be divided. It means that you should not follow the bad examples of others as they mix their worship of God with the worship of other so-called deities. His, his people were called to uniquely acknowledge him in worship. I wonder if you were to ever think about what would be said of you at your own funeral. You know, me, well, Asher, really, man, if you really knew him, you would know that he was all about X or Y, or Z, and what a haunting thing that that may be if it's, if it's anything other than God and his glory and the expansion of a kingdom. Well, he was really good at this. He's dead. No one cares. Well, he really liked this. He's dead. It doesn't matter. A call from this text, I think, is to devote ourselves to a careful study of God by his word. Remember, this is what they were neglecting. A careful study of God by his word, more carefully than you might study the news. More carefully than you might study a bank statement. More carefully than you might study a legal book or a football roster. 
Do you give yourselves to receiving the information of God's word in the same way that God has revealed himself to you in his very word? His sovereignty and lordship in our eyes is experienced as his spirit picks up his word and we read it and hear it and then it wields it in our hearts and lives. What has God instructed for you today in scripture? You should do it. That is part of how you worship him. It's part of how you uniquely recognize his authority in your life. So we see firstly here that God is exclusive and has no rivals. He'll punish that pursuit. The second thing you see just in a couple of verses, verses 10 through 13, is that he is active. Look at verses 10 through 13. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish men who are complacent, those who say their hearts, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, he will, nor will he do ill. Their goods will be plundered, their houses will lay waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. Zephaniah shows us here that God is active. In these verses, it becomes even more specific about what Jerusalem has coming forth. The coming destruction of Jerusalem is clear that God will not be silent, and yet he summons people in this passage to be silent as they worship him alone in awe and wonderment, finding themselves in sin. They then turn from silence to what it says there. They are to wail because of their sin. The, the people of Jerusalem are told to shout out because of their distress. Now, why should they shout out? What kind of distress are they going for? This is, this is kind of haunting and encouraging all at the same time. God's people have become complacent. See that in verse 12? God's people have become complacent. They're self-satisfied. In many ways, they might even be excusing their faults. But notice there, some of your Bibles may just have complacent or stagnant, like me. And you may have the idea of someone just kind of coasting. Someone's complacent in their ways. But no, I don't, I don't know why, but this word complacent, it's actually three Hebrew words. Uh, my Bible, it's only one. I don't know why it's translated that way. But, but actually it says that they are complacent in spirit or they are stagnant in dregs, D-R-E-G-S, dregs. Now, a lot of people don't use the word dregs today. I would actually fear being friends of anyone who just uses the word dregs. But who are these people who are complacent in spirit or complacent in dregs? You might think they're complacent in spirit and that they're just not pursuing the Lord spiritually. They have, a, they have a softening of the spirit or a dampening doubt of the spirit. But no, it's even more haunting than that. It is a visual of the stuff that thickens at the bottom of a wine barrel during fermentation and actually makes the wine completely undrinkable. The visual there is all the gross stuff that you would find at the bottom of a barrel. He's saying they're like that. It's not just that they're passive, it's that they are wasteful. The people in Jerusalem may be God's people, they are, but they are spiritually unaffected by God completely, like undrinkable wine. They are a waste. Now friend, if you say that you're a Christian, but you're unaffected by God, that's your actual testimony to the world. You're telling people that God, like you, is undrinkable and like a throwaway wine. Something that is made to be sweet and delightful and made to be a moment of celebration. Now it's just something you literally toss out because it won't make anything good. 
And what that means is, if that is your view of God, that is implicitly your testimony to the world, and what you're telling the world is actually a lie about this exclusive God. Your proclamation is verse 12. The Lord will not do good, and the Lord will not do bad. He is just this random force in the sky. The danger is we often lie about God by showing the world that God is actually like us. Friend, you do not want the world to know what God is like based on you. That would be a horrifying view of God. Friend, is it possible that you're a member of this church who affirms our confession of faith honestly with your mouth, but insincerely with your heart? That is, you say you believe in God, but you are, as the Puritans call it, a practical atheist. Someone who lives as if there is no God. You live a life in such a way that there's, there's no really influence of, of God and the Spirit in your life. You're, you're just like everyone else. And you use the excuse of, I'm not a terrible person. Well, neither are they. But the one thing that they don't have is the one thing you say you do have, yet you act exactly like them, maybe demonstrating that you don't have what you think you have at all. In your day-to-day life, you may rely entirely on yourself. In your day-to-day life, you may rely entirely on your own wisdom. Even if your lips can form the words, I believe in God, it's not really how you live. And so let me promise you what God is clear from his word, that a fine, successful, altogether life will never hide a person, a city, a nation from God's searching judgment of where a person's trust really is. You cannot put enough makeup on spiritually, to show what God can actually see in your heart. So God is not a do-nothing, passive God. He is, he is not a God who's just neither good, neither bad, but he is active. He is actionable. And the actionable love of God is for the punishment of sin and the lifting up of those who belong to him. Consider the activity in this actionable love of God that he has in Christ for us. It was Christ who came to us when we ran far from him. It was him who loved us when we hated him. It was him who died for us when we wanted only to kill him. It was him who saved us when we were ever too ready to condemn him. This is the God of the Bible who searches out his people in this passage, even though it will come against sin. We, we see this through the rest of Scripture's eyes where it's like it did come against sin and that wrath was poured out on the man, Christ Jesus himself, where God being just and merciful, is still very active and wanting to put away sin and despair. This is the God of the Bible, our God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of Israel, the God of some in Jerusalem who were quietly accusing him of doing nothing. And we see that he is way more doing more than nothing. And I hope you see what this means for us, that if you have been baptized and call yourself a Christian, yet are not living according to God's desire, according to God's word, God's exhortation for you is very simple. You should go from being silent before him to wail, which is another way of saying repent, turning from who you are and uniquely go to him. And you can do that thirdly because of what it says here in the next part, verses 14 of chapter 1 through 3 of chapter 2, where it talks about God being a righteous God who is both just and merciful. You think of him being exclusive and how haunting that is, 
You think of him being actionable or knowing that you cannot run and hide, but here he presents himself as one who is righteous. The third side of God that we see, the sight of God that we see is both just and merciful or righteous. With that, Zephaniah describes this coming day of God's justice with power and sharpness. In the Bible's prophetic literature, we often find a, a prophecy about the, new, or about the near future mixed together with a more distant and final uh, filling of apocalyptic elements. So a way to look at this, Zephaniah is talking about these people in this past, these people's immediate future, and it came to pass. But he's also, for all of us, expanding our view of what's really happening here, expanding our view of, of what we can see of him. And he's saying, this, this small thing that's going to happen, and it's certainly not small to him, it is going to be bigger and greater than you can ever imagine. And I think what this is talking about is when he comes a second time to judge the living and the dead where everyone will be resurrected and they'll stand before their maker. And they'll see that this is a God who is righteous before them. Here Zephaniah looks forward by the Spirit where he sees both the fall of Jerusalem that happened decades later with a preview of God's final judgment of the entire world. You can almost hear the desperate shouts and cries. I think you can see visually the looks of anguish in the darkness. You could you can smell the dust that's being talked about and the destruction that's ever-present. You can feel the heat of the fire of God's jealousy and taste the bitterness of that day, this day, in, verses, in verse 3 of chapter 2. It says, this will be the day of the Lord's anger. Yet God gives this warning to his people because he wants them to hear it, observe it, so that they won't fall under it. You think of, you think of what a kind weatherman does he, he presents a tornado as going to kill everyone in its path. And he's doing that because he wants you to get out of its path. Now, as Oklahomans, what do we do when we hear about a tornado coming for our town? We all go outside and we look for it to come our way. And then we take pictures of it and we send them into Twitter or whatever. We're like, look at it. It is really good. And they're like, get out of the way. God in his kindness is showing the havoc that will come for all those who have not had their sin dealt with by saying, there is a remedy from this. Get out of the way of my coming wrath. He wants them to turn and seek him. It's amazing that the actionable takeaways that you and I are called to have from this book, it says things like, we're to be silent, we're to seek him, we're to wail, we're to trust him. He wants you to turn and seek him in this passage. Zephaniah is only repeating what we have heard from the other prophets, Amos, Isaiah, and so forth, and what God's people would hear, again, from Christ Jesus himself. In fact, when you read the New Testament Gospels, you actually discover that the most fierce prophet of God's judgment is actually the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But look at, look at chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. He says, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord and the fire of his jealousy. All the earth will be consumed for the full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. I think the understanding here and the bulk of this is to recognize that every single person is going to be judged. There are not particular people groups who will not receive a judgment from the Lord. Everyone will be judged. That's what Zephaniah is saying. And we will not be judged for how our resume looks or 
for what was built. You think about what their enemies did. They come and toppled everything that they built. They ripped up their resumes. No one cared that you used to be that when the whole place was turned to dust. We won't be known for what we've done or what we've acquired. We'll be judged because, according to verse 17, we have sinned against the Lord. So, friend, please consider this. Your sin against God is why God will judge you. Now, the text also gives you hope and a way out from that judgment. He tells you what to do in your state of sinfulness. He tells you what to do with your wail and your silence. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. It's as simple as this. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you have been hidden. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Zephaniah tells you in your sin to turn from your sin and to seek God. You cannot seek sin and God at the same time. You have to turn one towards the other. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, the call to you is the same call to us. If you're not a believer, the call to you is just what it is to us, to seek the Lord, to recognize who you are, to recognize how that's an affront against the God of the universe, and to seek the Lord through that. And you can do this by praying to God, by asking him to reveal himself to you, by asking him to take away the consequences of your sin and to... Pray that you would trust and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You don't have to be in a church to pray. You don't have to do certain incense or do certain practices. You can pray at home. There's no magic formula that works. The honesty of your own heart is what's necessary. And after you pray, I would encourage you to read God's book about what you just prayed about. To meet then with God's people. To grow together, to pursue the Lord together, to join them in hearing his word taught and explained and lived out. It is in your best interest to seek the Lord with, by the means of which he has given you to seek the Lord. Far too often, you and I are swept up and wanting to feel some Halloween-esque, mystical like pursuit of the Lord. Do we, do we just need to do more stuff? And it's like, no, seek the Lord in his word. Pray to him. Surround yourself with other people who are saying, hey, seek, seek the Lord like this. As Christians, we know that the most amazing display of God's judgment actually has already occurred when he poured out his wrath on Christ on the cross. And we also know that the most astounding display of God's mercy occurred when Christ, hanging on the cross, actually took to himself or took upon himself God's very wrath for our sins. And that through our seeking of the Lord, we recognize that we will be on that side of God's judgment, where we stand under his robes of righteousness, where you and I look at the day that is going to come and say, we have no fear in that, for our sins have already been crushed on the shoulders of the ones which they did not belong. But the call is still for all of us that if you know that you have not had your sins placed on the cross of the Savior, that you will not survive the end when the Father comes. The hope from the Scriptures is for us all. If you trust in Christ, the themes of both God's judgment and mercy in Zephaniah actually prophesy and build up this glowing desire to actually meet the Lord, the one who was on the cross. And it's clear that if you don't accept the righteousness of Christ offered to you by faith, and you choose instead to hold your own righteousness up before God on the last day, like you would hold up a resume, like you would hold up a set of accomplishments, that you would hold up how many things you might have thought you have done for the Lord, then you will meet your end in fear. 
thank God that he has provided such an amazing and costly shelter for us in Christ. There's this really old 506-year-old story written poetically we're talking about where a man was told that he was going to meet his maker. And so he went to all of his friends and family, and he said, will you come with me to meet my maker? And they said, no, you have to go at it alone. And he went to more friends and said, will you come with me to meet my maker? And they said, you have to go at it alone. Everyone knows this. And so he brought with himself a a chest, like the visual of everything that he could bring with him, a U-Haul, if it were done 600 years later. He brings this chest of all the drawers of money and accomplishments and certificates and, and kind notes by everyone else, and he brings this chest to meet the Lord with them. But the chest starts talking in this story. And it says a haunting phrase, open the drawer. He opens one and he says, it's empty. Open the drawer, opens one, says it's empty. Open the drawer, it's empty. And this character's name is called Everyman. Where you and I just want to surround ourselves with people who we can meet the Lord with, hoping that we will be on their side. Or to surround ourselves with this chest of earthly glory so that we can meet the Lord with all of the allowances that he has given us. But the haunting repeated frame for every man, for you, friend, is that all of those will be empty. And you can either decide, have that be your righteous resume or have Christ's robes be your righteous resume. Because only one of those will cover you into the entry of a heavenly life. If you're a Christian, listen to God's words in his word. Repent of your sins. You too should seek the Lord, seek his righteousness, seek his shelter from his judgment and his mercy in Christ and be thankful for this day for the shelter that God offers you by faith and do not be silent about it. So we see that God is righteous. But fourthly, we see that he is a judge. We see that God is a judge. This is in chapter 2, verse 4 through chapter 3, verse 8. Zephaniah teaches a fourth thing about God and that God is the judge of the entire world. So far, Zephaniah's prophecy has largely been directed to God's own people. But beginning in Chapter 2, verse 4, he actually broadens his scope and makes it clear that all the nations of God are in sight. He addresses the Philistines first in verses 4 through 7. Then he addresses the Moabites and the Ammonites in verses 8 through 11. The Cushites come next, those who lived in Ethiopia. They hear the dire word, you too, O Cushites, will be slain by my sword. Even the mighty power of Assyria will fall under God's judgment in verses 13 through 15. And finally, you can see what he's doing here. He's he's painting a global picture, bit by bit, direction by direction. And then he zooms in at the very middle where Jerusalem is is again addressed. Since she acts like the nations, here's how God will speak to her. Chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her heart. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing to the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does, not, he does, he does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each draws. He does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. Still speaking to Jerusalem here. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. 
I said, surely you will fear me, you will accept correction, then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you, but all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. And as we hear the nations called off one by one, we begin to realize what the prophet is really going after. God will judge the whole earth. Verse 8, therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon my indignation all my burning anger for the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. God will judge everyone for their sinfulness. No one would escape from Ethiopia to the coast of Canaan to Assyria. He will judge the nations for callously rejecting his own people as with Moab and Ammon. He would judge the nations for proudly rejecting him as with Assyria. He would judge those who knew themselves to be God's people, at least externally, as with the city of Jerusalem. God pointed to all the nations around Judah and then pointed to Judah itself to teach that he was the judge of the entire world. He makes no distinctions with sin. Zephaniah was addressing people who were in the city of Jerusalem. They had the signs of the covenant, yet they would too be judged by God and would be lost. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to carefully consider the Bible's claim that God will judge you. He will judge you. He'll judge everyone else. So be encouraged. All your enemies will be judged. But he will judge you too. And Zephaniah's prophecy is written to each of us where God will judge us. Look at verse 8. Therefore, wait for me. Pour out my indignation. The whole earth will be consumed. You and I are certainly part of the whole world. God will judge without exception. There is no exception. Only, our only choice, therefore, is to follow the instructions that he offers to ancient Jerusalem to fear the Lord and accept his corrections. Friend, identify your sins and repent of them. Turn away from them and turn to God. And in the meantime, we who are God's people, what does it say for us to do? We're to wait for him. We must wait, persevering in trust and in hope, and in our trust and hope that are not blind, which with, with which we have not been asked to trust someone else, but trust wholly in him, recognizing that he will bring all to completion according to his good will, according to his good time, and according to his good justice and mercy. Difficulties in life will come one after another, but those of us who are on the side of the gospel's Christ given every opportunity to sin and be offered up again and again to worship false things, we must wait on the Lord and thank God for his commitment to the good and to the right. And the last thing we see here is that he is not only a judge, which is both encouraging for the Christian, recognizing that all evil will be dealt with, but also haunting for the non-Christian of recognizing that that means that he will deal with you. Lastly, we see that one last thing about God is that he is his people's savior. He's not just a judge, he's not just exclusive, but he is also his people's savior in verses 9 through 20. God is the savior of his people. Zephaniah's prophecy is hopeful and encouraging as God follows up his promises of judgment with, promise, with a promise of restoration. Look at verse 9. This says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame. 
because the deeds by which you have rebelled against me, for then I will remove from from your midst your proudly exultant ones. And you shall no longer be haughty in a holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They do, they, do not, they do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouths a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Here in the promises, the prophet calls the people here to then sing. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice. Fear not. Rejoice. Exult. You'll be gathered. He will save you. All of this. And then he says, this is the word of the Lord. The book of Zephaniah closes with God repeating his promise of restoration. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival. I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame. I will gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise. And at that time, I will bring you in when I restore your fortunes. The great news of Zephaniah is that God will save all of his people. There is not one of his own which will be lost. He will vindicate and change and gather and revel in his people. This is, this is his plan and our great hope. Like the book of Revelation, God lovingly gives his people who are about to endure a great trial a clear view of the final end so that they might be strengthened and encouraged and prepared to follow him. You can imagine what it would be like to read this book in exile. I would imagine some of you could be encouraged by this book as you've been walking through a life of just overt oppression and shame and sorrow and circumstances that are just horrible. And he's saying he will deal with sin, but look to the end when he restores his people. He'll do all of that. The same one that will bring down his enemies is the one who will lift up all those whom he calls beloved. The day is coming where God will stop judging governments and history, and he will more directly rule his creation. And that is the day for which you and I are called to prepare with our whole hearts this morning. God will justly judge all of our sins, not because he is harsh, but because he is right. Yet in his amazing love, it was God who came in the flesh and lived among us. It was God who lived a perfect life and died on the cross as a sacrifice, a substitute for the sins of all of those who would ever turn to him and trust in him. This God-man, Christ Jesus, was then raised to new life, showing God's acceptance of his sacrifice, vindicating his ministry and his claims, where Jesus then calls us to now repent of our sins and trust in him, where we look through this process, where we look through this book and say, if that was done to Christ, it will be done to us, where sins were dealt with, so that one can be raised. For Christians, there is no doubt that the point of this book is to worship God like at the end. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all of your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. And how can all these things come to us? We recognize that it's only in Christ who has borne our sins. Finishing with a final refrain in verse 17, the Lord your God will take great delight in you, will quiet you with his love, will rejoice over you with singing. Our God who is this, promises to do that because he is gracious and good. Let's pray.